Book the Third, Part Three of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, George Sheldon's Prospects. For George Sheldon, the passing years had brought very little improvement of fortune. He occupied his old dingy chambers in Gray's Inn, which had grown more dingy under the hand of time and he was wont to sit in his second-floor window on sultry summer Sundays, smoking his solitary cigar, and listening to the cawing of the rooks in the garden beneath him, mingled with the voices of rebellious children, and shrill mothers threatening to do for them, or to flay them alive, in somebody's rents below. The lawyer used to be quite meditative on those Sunday afternoons, and would wonder what sort of fellow Lord Bacon was, and how he contrived to get into a mess about taking bribes, when so many other fellows had done it quietly enough before the lord of Verulam's day, and even yet more quietly since. Agreeably instigated thereto by the casuistry of Escobar, Mr. Sheldon's prospects were by no means promising. From afar off he beheld his brother's star shining steadily in the commercial firmament, but, except for an occasional dinner, he was very little the better for the stockbroker's existence. He had reminded his brother very often, and very persistently, of that vague promise which the dentist had made in the hour of his adversity, the promise to help his brother if he ever did drop into a good thing. But as it is difficult to prevent a man who is disposed to shuffle from shuffling out of the closest agreement that was ever made between Jones of the one part and Smith of the other part, duly signed and witnessed, and stamped with the sixpenny seal of infallibility. So it is still more difficult to obtain the performance of loosely worded promises, uttered in the confidential intercourse of kinsmen. In the first year of his married life, Philip Sheldon gave his brother a hundred pounds for the carrying out of some grand scheme which the lawyer was then engaged in, and which, if successful, would secure for him a much larger fortune than Georgie's thousands. Unhappily, the grand scheme was a failure, and the hundred pounds being gone, George applied again to his brother, reminding him once more of that promise made in Bloomsbury, but on this occasion Mr. Sheldon plainly told his kinsman that he would do no more for him. "'You must fight your own battle, George,' he said, "'as I have fought mine.' "'Thank you, Philip,' said the younger brother. I would rather fight it any other way. And then the two men looked at each other, as they were in the habit of doing sometimes with a singularly intent gaze. You are very close-fisted with Tom Halliday's money, George said presently. If I'd asked poor old Tom himself, I'm sure he wouldn't have refused to lend me two or three hundred. Then it's a pity you didn't ask him, Mr. Sheldon answered with supreme coolness. I should have done so fast enough if I thought he was going to die so suddenly. It was a bad day for me, and for him, too, when he came to Fitzgeorge Street. "'What do you mean by that?' asked Mr. Sheldon sharply. "'You can pretty well guess my meaning, I should think,' George answered in a sulky tone. "'No, I can't, and what's more, I don't mean to try. I'll tell you what it is, Master George.' You've been treating me to a good many hints and innuendos lately, and you must know very little of me if you don't know that I'm the last kind of man to stand for that sort of thing from you, or from anyone else. 
you have tried to take the tone of a man who has some kind of hold upon another you had better understand at once that such a tone won't answer with me if you had any hold on me or any power over me you'd be quick enough to use it and you ought to be aware that i know that and can see to the bottom of such a shallow little game as yours mr sheldon the younger looked at his brother with an expression of surprise that was not entirely unmingled with admiration well you are a cool hand phil he said here the conversation ended the two brothers were very good friends after this and george presented himself at the gothic villa whenever he received an invitation to dine there the dinners were good and the men who ate them were men of solidity and standing in the commercial world and george was very glad to eat good dinners and to meet eligible men but he never again asked his brother for the loan of odd hundreds he grubbed on as best he might in the dingy gray's inn chambers he had little business business which lay chiefly amongst men who wanted to borrow money or whose halting footsteps required guidance through the quagmire of the bankruptcy court he just contrived to keep his head above water and his name in the law list by means of such business but the great scheme of his life remained as yet unripened an undeveloped shadow to which he had in vain attempted to give a substance the leading idea of george sheldon's life was the idea that there were great fortunes in the world waiting for claimants and that a share of some such fortune was to be obtained by any man who had the talent to dig it out of the obscurity in which it was hidden he was a student of old country histories and a searcher of old newspapers and his studies in that line had made him familiar with many strange stories storage of field laborers called away from the plough to be told they were the rightful owners of forty thousand a year stories of old white-haired men starving to death in miserable garrets about bethnal green or spitalfields who could have claimed lands and riches immeasurable had they known how to claim them stories of half-crazy old women who had wandered about the world with reticules of discolored paper clamorously asserting their rights and wrongs unheeded and unbelieved until they encountered sharp-witted lawyers who took up their claims and carried them triumphantly into the ownership of unlimitable wealth george sheldon had read these things until it had seemed to him that there must be some chance for any man who would have patience to watch and wait for it he had taken up several cases and had fitted link after link together with extreme labor and had hunted in parish registers until the cold moldy atmosphere of vestries was as familiar to him as the air of gray's inn but the cases had all broken down at more or less advanced stages and after infinite patience and trouble a good deal of money spent upon traveling and small fees to all manner of small people and an incalculable number of hours wasted in listening to the rambling discourse of parish clerks and old inhabitants mr sheldon had been compelled to abandon his hopes time after time until a man with less firmly rooted ideas would have given up the hunting of registers and grubbing up of genealogies as a delusion and snare george sheldon's ideas were very firmly rooted and he stuck to them with that dogged persistency which so often achieves great ends that it seems a kind of genius 
he saw his brother's success and contemplated the grandeurs of the gothic villa in a cynical rather than an envious spirit how long would it all last how long would the stockbroker float triumphantly onward upon that wonderful tide which is constituted by the rise and fall of the money market that sort of thing is all very well while a man keeps his head cool and clear thought george but somehow or other men always seem to lose their heads on the stock exchange before they have done with it and i dare say my wise brother will drop into a nice mess sooner or later setting aside all other considerations i think i would rather have my chances than his for i speculate very little more than my time and trouble and i stand in to win a bigger sum than he will ever get in his line let stocks rise and fall as they may during that summer in which miss halliday bade farewell to hyde lodge and her school days george sheldon was occupied with the early steps in a search which he hoped would end in the discovery of a prize rich enough to reward him for all his wasted time and labor very early in the previous year there had appeared the following brief notice in the observer the rev john haygarth late vicar of tilford haven kent died lately without a will or relation to claim his property one hundred thousand pounds the crown therefore claimed it and the last court day of the prerogative court of canterbury decreed letters of administration to mr paul the nominee of the crown some months after this advertisement had been inserted in the times newspaper to the following effect next of kin if the relatives or next of kin of rev john haygarth late vicar of tilford haven in the county of kent clerk deceased who has left property of the value of one hundred thousand pounds will apply either personally or by letter to stephen paul esq solicitor for the affairs of her majesty's treasury at the treasury chambers whitehall london they may hear of something to their advantage the late rev john haygarth is supposed to have been the son of matthew haygarth late of the parish of st judith ullerton and rebecca his wife formerly rebecca caulfield spinster late of the same parish both long since deceased upon the strength of this advertisement george sheldon began his search his theory was that there always existed an heir at law somewhere if people would only have the patience to hunt him or her out and he attributed his past failures rather to a want of endurance on his own part than to the breaking down of his pet theory on this occasion he began his work with more than usual determination this is the biggest chance i've ever had he said to himself and i should be something worse than a fool if i let it slip through my fingers the work was very dry and dreary involving interminable hunting of registers the questioning of oldest inhabitants and the oldest inhabitants were so stupid and the records of the registers so bewildering one after another mr sheldon set himself to examine the lines of the intestates kindred and ancestors his father's only sister his grandfather's brothers and sisters and even to the brothers and sisters of his great-grandfather at that point the haygarth family melted away into the impenetrable darkness of the past there were no high and haughty race of soldiers and scholars churchmen and lawyers or the tracing of them would have been a much easier matter burke would have told them 
there would have been old country houses filled with portraits and garrulous old housekeepers learned in the traditions of the past there would have been mouldering tombs and tarnished brasses in quiet country churches with descriptive epitaphs and many escutcheons there would have been crumbling parchments recording the prowess of sir reginald knight or the learning of sir rupert counsellor and judge the haygarths were a race of provincial tradesmen and had left no record of their jog-trot journey through this world than the registry of births marriages and deaths in obscure churches or an occasional entry in the fly-leaf of a family bible at present mr sheldon was only at the beginning of his work the father and grandfather and uncle had great-uncles the great-grandfather and great-great-uncles with all their progenies lay before him in a maze of entanglement which would be his business to unravel and he was obliged to keep his limited legal connection together while he devoted himself to this task the work promised to extend over months or indeed years and in the meanwhile there was always the fear that someone else as quick-witted and indefatigable as himself would take up the same tangled skein and succeed in the unravelment of it looking this fact full in the face mr sheldon decided that he must have an able and reliable coadjutor but to find such a coadjutor to find a man who would help him on the chance of success and not claim too large a share of the prize if success came was more than the speculative attorney could hope in the meantime his work progressed very slowly and he was tormented by perpetual terror of that other sharp practitioner who might be following up the same clue and whose agents might watch him in and out of the parish churches and listen at street corners when he was hunting an oldest inhabitant chapter four diana finds a new home the holidays at hyde lodge brought at least repose for diana paget the little ones had gone home with the exception of two or three young colonists and even they had perpetual liberty from lessons so diana had nothing to do but sit in the shady garden reading or thinking in the drowsy summer afternoons priscilla paget had departed with the chief of the teachers for a seaside holiday other governesses had gone to their homes and but for the presence of an elderly frenchwoman who slept through one half of the day and wrote letters to her kindred during the other half diana would have been the only responsible person in the deserted habitation she did not complain of her loneliness or envy the delights of those who had departed she was very glad to be quite alone free to think her own thoughts free to brood over those unforgotten years in which she had wandered over the face of the earth with her father and valentine hawkehurst the few elder girls remaining at the lodge thought miss paget unsociable because she preferred a lonely corner in the garden and some battered old book of namby-pamby stories to the delights of their society and criticized her very severely as they walked listlessly to and fro upon the lawn with big garden hats and arms entwined about each other's waists alas for diana the battered book was only an excuse for solitude and for a morbid indulgence in her own sad thoughts she had lived the life of unblemished respectability for a year and looking back now at the bohemian wanderings she regretted those days of humiliation and misery 
and sighed for the rare delights of that disreputable past. Yes, she had revolted against the degraded existence, and now she was sorry for having lost its uncertain pleasures, its fitful glimpses of sunshine. Was that true which Valentine had said, that no man can eat beef and mutton every day of his life, that it is better to be utterly miserable one day and uproariously happy the next, than to tread one level path of dull content. Miss Paget began to think that there had been some reason in her old comrade's philosophy, for she found the level path very dreary. She let her thoughts wander whither they would in this quiet holiday idleness, and they went back to the years which she had spent with her father. She thought of the winter evenings in London, when Valentine had taken her the round of theatres, and they had sat together in stifling upper boxes. She pleased, he critical, and with so much to say to each other in the pauses of the performance. How kind he had been to her, how good, how brotherly! And in the pleasant walk home, through crowded noisy thoroughfares, and anon by long lines of quiet streets, in which they used to look up at the lighted windows of houses where parties were being given, and sometimes stop to listen to the music and watch the figures of the dancers flitting across the blinds. She thought of the journey she had travelled with her father and Valentine, by land and sea, the lonely moonlight watches on the decks of steamers, the long chill nights in railway carriages under the feeble glimmer of an oil lamp, and how she and Valentine had beguiled the tedious hours with wild purposeless talk while Captain Paget slept. She remembered the strange cities which she and her father's protégé had looked at side by side, he with a calm listlessness of manner, which might be either real or assumed, but which never varied, she with an inward tremor of excitement and surprise. They had been very happy together, this lonely unprotected girl and the reckless adventurer. If his manner to her had been fitful, it had been sometimes dangerously fatally kind. She looked back now, and remembered the days which she had spent with him, and knew that all the pleasures possible in a prosperous and successful life could never bring for her such delight as she had known in the midst of her wanderings, though shame and danger lurked at every corner, and poverty, disguised in that tawdry masquerade habit in which the swindler dresses it, accompanied her wherever she went. She had been happy with him because she had loved him. That close companionship, sisterly and brotherly though it had seemed, had been fatal for the lonely and friendless daughter of Horatio Paget. In her desolation she had clung to the one creature who was kind to her, who did not advertise his disdain for herself and her sex, or openly avow that she was a nuisance and an encumbrance. Every slight put upon her by her father had strengthened the chain that bound her to Valentine Hawkehurst, and as the friendship between them grew closer day by day, until all her thoughts and fancies took their color from his, it seemed a matter of course that he should love her, and she never doubted his feelings or questioned her own. There had been much in his conduct to justify her belief that she was beloved. So this inexperienced, untutored girl may surely be forgiven if she rested her faith in that fancied affection, 
and look forward to some shadowy future in which she and valentine would be man and wife all in all to each other free from the trammels of captain paget's elaborate schemes and living honestly somehow or other by means of literature or music or pen and ink caricatures or some of those liberal arts which have always been dear to the children of bohemia they would have lodgings in some street near the thames and go to a theatre or concert every evening and spend long summer days in suburban parks or on suburban commons he lying on the grass smoking she talking or reading to him as his fancy might dictate before her twentieth birthday the proudest woman is apt to regard the man she loves as a grand and superior creature and there had been a certain amount of reverential awe mingled with diana's regard for mr hawkehurst scapegrace and adventurer though he was little by little that bright girlish dream faded away fancy's enchanted palace had been shattered into a heap of shapeless ruin by those accidental scraps of hard worldly wisdom with which valentine had pelted the fairy fabric he a man to love or to marry for love why he talked like some hardened world-weary sinner who had done with every human emotion the girl shuddered as she heard him she had loved him and believed in his love she had fancied a tender meaning in the voice which softened when it spoke to her a pensive earnestness in the dark eyes which looked at her but just when the voice had seemed softest and sweetest the pensive eyes most eloquently earnest the adventurer's manner had changed all at once and forever he had grown hard and cold and indifferent he had scarcely tried to conceal the fact that the girl's companionship bored and wearied him he had yawned in her face and had abandoned himself to moody abstraction when accident obliged him to be alone with her miss paget's pride had been equal to the occasion and marianne kepp would have dissolved into tears at the first unkind word from the lips of her beloved but marianne kepp's daughter with the blood of the cromy pagets in her veins was quite a different person she returned mr hawkehurst's indifference with corresponding disregard if his manner was cold as a bleak autumn hers was icy as a severe winter only now and then when she was very tired of her joyless existence her untutored womanhood asserted itself and she betrayed the real state of her feelings betrayed herself as she had done on her last night at forette de chaine when she and valentine had looked down at the lighted windows shining dimly through the purple of the summer night she looked back at the past now in the quiet of the school garden and tried to remember how miserable she had been what agonies of despair she had suffered how brief had been her delights how bitter her disappointments she tried to remember what tortures she had suffered from that wasted passion that useless devotion she tried to rejoice in the consciousness of the peace and respectability of her present life but she could not that passionate yearning for the past possessed her so strongly she could not remember nothing except that she had been with him she had seen his face she had heard his voice and now how long and weary the time might be before she could again see that one beloved face or hear the dear familiar voice the brightest hope she had in these midsummer holidays was the hope of a letter from him 
and even that might be a prelude of disappointment. She wrestled with herself, and tried to exercise those ghosts of memory which haunted her by day, and wove themselves into her dreams by night. But they were not to be laid at rest. She hated her folly, but her folly was stronger than herself. For three weeks Diana Paget had no companions but her sorrowful memories, her haunting shadows. But at the end of that time the stagnant mill-pond of her life was suddenly ruffled. The dull course of existence was disturbed by the arrival of two letters. She found them lying by her plate upon the breakfast-table one bright July morning. And while she was yet far away from the table, she could see that one of the envelopes bore a foreign stamp, and was directed by the hand of Valentine Hawkehurst. She seated herself at the table in a delicious flutter of emotion, and tore open that foreign envelope, while the French governess poured out the tea, and while the little group of schoolgirls nudged one another and watched her eager face with insolent curiosity. The first letter contained only a few lines. "'My dear Diana,' wrote the young man, "'your father has decided on returning to London,' where I believe he really intends to make a respectable start, if he can only get the opening and the help he wants. I know you will be glad to hear this. I don't exactly say where we shall take up our quarters, but the captain will, of course, come to see you, and if I can chasten my outward semblance sufficiently to venture within the sacred precincts of a lady's school, I shall come with him. Direct to the old address if you write before the end of the month, and believe me, as always, your friend, Valentine. The second letter was in Charlotte Halliday's big bold hand, and was frank, impetuous, and loving as the girl herself. My own dearest die, it is all arranged, wrote Miss Halliday, dashing at once into the heart of the subject. I talked to Mama over the very first day after my return, and there was nothing more to be done than talk over Mr. Sheldon. Of course, there was just a little difficulty in that, for he is so awfully practical, and he wanted to know why I wanted a companion, and what use you would be in the house. As if the very last thing one required in a companion was companionship. I'm almost afraid to tell you the iniquitous fables I invented about your extreme usefulness, your genius for millinery, and the mints of money you would save by making up Mama's flimsy little caps, your taste for dressmaking, etc., etc., etc. You are the cleverest creature in the world, you know, Di, for you must remember how you altered that green silk dress for me when Miss Pearson had made me a square-shouldered fright. So after a great deal of humming and hawing and augification, is there such a word as augification? I wonder. My stepfather said that if my heart was set upon having you, and if I thought you would be useful, you might come to us, but that he could not afford to give you any salary, and that if you wanted a new dress now and then, I must buy it for you out of my own allowance, and I will, darling, if you will only come and be my friend and sister." My life is dreadfully dull without you. I walk up and down the stiff little gravel paths and stare at geraniums and calcellarius. Mariana might have been dreary in her moated grange, but I dare say the Lincolnshire flowers grew wild and free, and she was spared the abomination of gaudy little patches of red and yellow and waving ribbons of blue and white, 
which constitute the glory of modern gardening do come to me dear i have no one to talk to and nothing to do mamma is a dear good affectionate soul but she and i don't understand each other i don't care for her twittering little birds and she doesn't care for my whims and fancies i have read novels until i am tired i am not allowed to go out by myself and mamma can scarcely walk to kensington gardens without sinking under the exertion we drive out sometimes but i am sick to death of crawling slowly up and down by the serpentine staring at people's bonnets i might enjoy it perhaps if i had you with me to make fun out of some of the bonnets the house is very comfortable but it always seems to me unpleasantly like some philanthropic institution in miniature i long to scratch the walls or break the windows and i begin to understand the feelings of those unhappy paupers who tear up their clothes they get utterly tired of their stagnation you see and must do something wicked and rebellious rather than do nothing at all you will take pity upon my forlorn state won't you di i shall come to hyde lodge to-morrow afternoon with mamma to hear you until what's its name and in the meanwhile and for ever afterwards believe me to be your devoted and unchanging lota diana paget's eyes grew dim as she read this letter i love her very dearly she thought but not one hundredfold as much as i ought to love her and then she went back to mr hawkenhurst's epistle and read and re-read its half-dozen lines wondering when he would come to london and whether she would see him when he came to see him again the thought of that possibility seemed like a spot of vivid light which dazzled her eyes and made them blind to anything around or beyond it and for this strange offer of a strange home in the household of mr sheldon it seemed to her a matter of so very little importance where she went or what became of her that she was quite willing to let other people decide her existence anything would be better than the monotony of hyde lodge if valentine hawkehurst came to see her at mr sheldon's house he would be permitted to see her alone most likely and it would be something like the old times whereas at the lodge priscilla paget or one of the governesses would undoubtedly be present at any interview between diana and her old friend and the real valentine would be hidden under the semblance of a respectable young man with very little to say for himself perhaps this one thought exercised considerable influence over miss paget's decision she wanted so much to see valentine alone to know whether he had changed to see his face at the first moment of meeting and to discover if possible the solution of that enigma which was the grand mystery of her life that one perpetual question which was always repeating itself in her brain whether he was altogether cold and indifferent or if there was not some hidden warmth some secret tenderness beneath that repelling outward seeming in the afternoon miss halliday called with mrs sheldon and there was a long discussion about diana paget's future life georgie abandoned herself as unhesitatingly to the influence of her daughter as she did to that of her husband and had been brought to think that it would be the most delightful thing in the world to have miss paget for a useful companion and will you really make my caps dear she said when she had grown at ease with diana 
Miss Turley at the Baywater Road charges me so much for the simplest little lace headdress, and though Mr. Sheldon is very good about those sorts of things, I know he sometimes thinks my bills rather high. Diana was very indifferent about her future, and the heart must have been very hard which could have resisted Charlotte's tender pleading. So it was ultimately decided that Miss Paget should write to her kinswoman to describe the offer that had been made to her of a new home, and to inquire if her services could be conveniently dispensed with at Hyde Lodge. After which decision Charlotte embraced her friend with enthusiasm and departed, bearing off Miss Sheldon to the carriage which awaited them at the gates of Priscilla Paget's umbragious domain. Diana sighed as she went back to the empty schoolroom. Even Charlotte's affection could not altogether take the sting out of dependence. To go into a strange house, amongst strange people, and to hold a place in it only on the condition of being perpetually useful and unfailingly good-tempered and agreeable, is scarcely the pleasant prospect which this world can offer to a proud and beautiful woman. Diana remembered her bright vision of bohemianism in a lodge near the Strand. It would be very delightful to ride on sufferance in Mrs. Sheldon's carriage, no doubt. But, oh, how much more pleasure it would have been to sit by Valentine Hawkehurst in a handsome cab, spinning along the road to Greenwich or Richmond. She had promised to dispatch her letter to Priscilla by that afternoon's post, and she kept her promise. The reply came by return of post, and was very kind. Priscilla advised her by all means to accept Miss Halliday's offer, which would give her a much better position than that which she occupied at Hyde Lodge. She would have time to improve herself, no doubt, Priscilla said, and might be able to hope for something still better in the course of two or three years. "'For you must look at the world straight in the face, Diana,' wrote the schoolmistress, as I did before I was your age, and make up your mind to rely on your own exertions, since you know what your father is, and how little you have to hope for from him. As you are to have no salary with the Sheldons, and will no doubt be expected to make a good appearance, I shall do what I can to help you with your wardrobe. This letter decided the fate of Captain Paget's daughter. A week after Miss Halliday's visit to Hyde Lodge, a hack cab carried Diana and all her earthly possessions to the lawn, where Charlotte received her with open arms, and where she was inducted into a neatly furnished bedchamber adjoining that of her friend. Mr. Sheldon scrutinized her keenly from under the shadow of his thick black brows when he came home to dinner. He treated her with a stiff kind of politeness during the orderly progress of the meal, and once when he looked at her, he was surprised to find that she was contemplating him with an expression of mingled wonder and reverence. He was the first eminently respectable man whom Miss Paget had ever encountered in familiar intercourse, and she was regarding him attentively, as an individual with scientific tastes might regard some natural curiosity. End of Book the Third, Part Three